the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You're familiar with that little sleepy section just about halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego called San Clemente. I think of it uh, just nearby a beautiful historic Dana Point. There you have some of California's... um, Beautiful, beautiful, white, sun-kissed beaches. Of course, the famous San Clemente Pier. And who could forget the retirement destination of Richard Nixon when he left office in 1973. And uh, kind of the image of him going along the beach wearing uh, beach shorts and his uh, metal detector looking for, you know, buried treasure along the San Clemente coastline. Kind of a sleepy town, but who would imagine that out of those settings would come a movement to help call worldwide attention to what's going on in modern-day slavery. And when you hear that, you say, oh, Craig, poor Craig. Here, as we've just recently marked President's birthday, Lincoln and Washington here in February, we ought to be thinking of the fact that Lincoln helped abolish slavery back in the 1860s. Well, there were a lot of important strides toward the abolishment of slavery in America at that time. But truth be told, truth be told, that action 150 plus years ago did nothing to abolish slavery permanently. It still exists in many pockets here in America. It still exists to tremendous and shockingly degrees all around the world, as my next guest found out. And it led her to get involved in encouraging women everywhere to stand up and to essentially be a voice for those that have no voice. Kimberly McOwen-Yem joins us today. She has co-authored a new book called Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. And Kim, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I now, when it. I say the, the end of slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation signed into law by President Lincoln back in the 1860s, that, that ended slavery of sorts and to a degree in fashion. But the reality is, in 2013, not only does slavery still exist, but in fact it's flourishing in many parts of the world. Yes, that is correct. And I, four years ago, I would have thought, I, as far as I knew, slavery was abolished. My understanding of slavery uh, was about the same level as my eight-year-old daughter at that time, and I thought it ended with the Emancipation Proclamation and found myself stunned to learn that there is an estimated number of over 27 million slaves in our world today and that 80% of those are women and children. We've seen focus in recent times on the issue of human trafficking, and particularly slavery as it relates to sex trades. We know certainly that there's so-called uh, sex tourism into places like Thailand and, and whatnot, but I think a lot of folks are, are completely ignorant of the fact that not only does it take place in third world countries, but a lot of that slavery is exported to the first world, meaning even America. Yes, and it's not always um, with 
uh, foreign women or girls or um, even men, but it's also um, with our with American children and women and men. And so we oftentimes think that it's over there and it's a problem not of our own. And what we're seeing um, is that it is. It is a problem here as well. And it is affecting even um, our suburb communities that we oftentimes take for granted are safe places. And so, yes, you're absolutely correct. Tell me a bit about how this first kind of came on your radar screen. You're you're busy. You're raising a family. You're there yeah. in this generally beautiful little, uh, uh, very um, idyllic uh, community called San Clemente. How all of a sudden does the topic of slavery and human trafficking get on your radar screen? That's a good question because it sure wasn't until uh, uh, a friend of ours that we were that I was just doing a little bit of work with. I had just kind of gone um, back to work part time. Was working for my dad, and he invited us to see a film. It, the, the the documentary Call and Response was just releasing, and he was involved in some of the marketing for the film and invited us to see the film and. So we went more as supportive friends, uh, kind of new colleagues, and I completely underestimated what I was about to learn and the impact that it would have on me. Uh, It definitely caught me off guard. I kind of knew the subject was about human trafficking, but I don't think I really understood what human trafficking was. At the time, four years ago, I kind of associated with smuggling and um, just thought this would be just another interesting film. I had no idea the impact that it would have. And that's kind of how I first kind of woke up to uh, what was going around around me. When we begin to consider the breadth and depth of the impact of this, many car, uh, parts of the world uh, where there are people being taken advantage of people that are being lured into this and I suppose a lot of the reasons are the same today as it was a century or two centuries ago and that is a lot of it has to do with with power and money we're going to explore that aspect of this equation also talk about some of the unlikely trades and places where you find modern day slavery taking place and I think as much as Kimberly was shocked to discover that this was going on at all, let alone the breadth and depth of it. I am pretty much persuaded you might be, too. If you've just joined the conversation, it's a bit of a delicate one, to be sure. And there might be an opportunity here if you have uh, young ones with an earshot of the radio to maybe busy them elsewhere. Uh, We're dealing with one of those topics that we don't necessarily want to hear about, but need to hear about. As we uh, pull back the blinds, so to speak, and let in the light of day on the topic of modern-day slavery. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Kimberly McOwen-Yim as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation today with Kimberly McOwen-Yim. A look at the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And I had no doubt... Uh, Kimberly, there are some eavesdropping on this conversation right now that would say, well, now, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're talking about a handful. I mean, certainly we're, we're compassionate about all of this, but we must be talking about slavery that's limited to the third world. It might occasionally be exported into uh, the West, but for the most part, a lot of this is concentrated in parts of the world we never see and know nothing about. 
Yeah, I I can see why that would be kind of the general uh, first assumption. But when you scratch the surface, it's happening um, all around us. And uh, actually, in your neck of the woods of Northern California, there's actually a probably a really strong presence of anti-trafficking coalitions that's going on. Actually, the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition is just around the corner from you guys, and um, there's a lot of different um, organizations doing amazing stuff in your area, both in your local area as well as um, addressing needs globally. But yeah, we people on the front lines of the anti-trafficking fight um, have been seeing forms of slavery from uh, massage parlors to nail salons to agricultural work to domestic domestic slaves um, through uh, uh, nannies and cleaning services um, construction I mean there's it's there's been documented cases of trafficking in all those uh, regions of all those different different um, uh, different groupings uh, here in the United States, let alone some of the um, big kind of global issues that are happening as well in some of those same things. So um, commercial sexual exploitation is a, a huge problem and concern, and this is happening in everyday towns. And this is happening, I think we need to be clear about this, as, as much as we typically think of this either in the historical context of, 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 of chattel or, or possessive type slavery, but there's a number of different categories, whether we're talking about forced labor, child labor, uh, debt bondage, whatever the case might be, and then it gets played out not just into the cases of sex trafficking that usually capture the headline news, but this is this is feeding into a lot of everyday industry. I mean, let's face right. it, this is more than just, uh, well, I, let me go back to it. This is probably the same issue that's driving this today as what drove it 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that's driven this topic since the beginning of mankind, and that is power and money. Yeah, and and yeah, the, the bottom line profitability of it is what's driving it. Yeah, the economy of it. The difference is, though, that Back when it was legal, um, you know, a smart business guy would have a variety of, you know, have many slaves, and they would be an investment. They would spend kind of the equivalent of $40,000 in today's economy. It would be an investment for uh, their business. Now, it's not translating. The value of a human being, a human life, has significantly decreased and a slave can be purchased on average between 90 and 120 dollars so that the people are becoming more of a commodity human beings are being bought and sold in that commodity level price range they're not no longer seen as an investment but just a way to kind of get ahead but not um, a real investment so that's why they're um, disposable. I mean, Kevin Bales in his book wrote "Disposable People." He talks about how he specifically highlights that point um, in his book. But um, yeah, that's that's the unfortunate part. But I think it's uh, it's an important piece to kind of recognize that um, people are discarded. So uh, a, a woman who is bought and sold on uh, Backpage on adult services section on Backpage. Um, she is bought and sold commercially. 
and say she gets uh, a disease or an illness or becomes too difficult, she could be put out on the street, she can be disposed of, and those are going to be another young girl or young woman that's going to cycle back in. When we consider the fact that, for example, in the last several years, just along the U.S.-Mexico border, there have been six, 7,000 people that have lost their lives as part of the, the drug cartel violence, you begin to get the impression and clear understanding that life is cheap, life is worthless, and many of these people are being treated simply like commodities to be bought and sold and traded, used and then thrown out when they're no longer of any value. And the sad irony is your book really reveals this goes well beyond some of the more obvious aspects of, of quote-unquote, modern-day slavery and the sex trades. Uh, it, it touches every aspect of, of life, doesn't it? Yeah, I and when I learned that um, what was going on, part of the conflict, now uh, what's going on in the Congo is a complex issue, but part of what's going on is the fight over these um, mines where minerals are being mined, and those minerals end up in our cell phones and our computers and our laptops and our MP3 players. And when I saw, so our economy is very complex, and so it's adding this to complexities that are going, rather than just certain tribal wars for certain lands, it's because these minerals are so precious that ends up in my phone. So inadvertently, I'm part of the problem. And so when I began to see that the, what, what I do with my time, what I'm doing with my resources, the, the things that I buy, those are not neutral. There is... They have a more global impact than I realize. Just because I don't acknowledge it or I did not understand it doesn't mean that I'm not a a part of it. And so when I began to see that, I felt a great responsibility to understand it, but then to see, to do the things that I can do that are within my power to make a difference. Now, I can't, Congo is a complex, I cannot go over there and create peace. There are some many amazing um, leaders in that country that are working on that. The local church and different NGOs and different uh, global leaders are involved in that. But what I can do that I found out is that I can begin to ask my electronic companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chain? What are you doing to help remedy this? The ordinary person has tremendous power when they start asking those questions, asking for slave-free products. And there's platforms that are already existing so that the average consumer can go online and can begin to ask those questions. There's platforms such as Slavery Footprint. And Slavery Footprint is in your neck of the woods in Northern California. Their their headquarters are. And that's a great platform to sign up on and start asking those questions, asking your companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chains? And... That, the, these are the kinds of things that I began to see. There's tools, there's platforms, there's people that are creating these accessible things. I just need to use them. And this is the part that I can do. This reaches into almost every aspect of life, uh, both in the third and the first world. Uh, we see evidence of human slavery taking place not just again in the sex trade, which is where it tends to capture a lot of the headline stories, but the agricultural business. You mentioned about mining and manufacturing. 
We even see it in retail and domestics, which, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks, I think, are not aware of the fact that, for example, there are people that get smuggled into countries by coyotes that pay tens of thousands of dollars or obligate themselves to pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to be pulled out of horrific circumstances in a third world nation into, say, a country like the United States. And then once they arrive here, they're not cut loose to fend for themselves. They suddenly find now that they have an obligation to a coyote of ten grand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars And now they're stuck working for years in a domestic trade or maybe even working in a retail business. We see it going on in the flower industry, in aspects of manufacturing, agriculture. I mean, the list of places where this reaches its ugly tentacles into Kimberly is shocking. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm I appreciate your your the, the knowledge that you do have because it's amazing to me how many there's very you're very fortunate I'm lucky to be on the show when you know um, as much as you do because that is absolutely correct. I mean, I think there I thought that there are people that came to the country legally or illegally um, and you know, you have, might have one thought about immigration, but once you're here, to be additionally exploited because you wanted a better life for your family is is a shame. It's horrible. I mean, I I think that to, to, to risk your life and spend, even if you're spending money to get here, and then once you're here, you're additionally exploited. Because what, what human trafficking is, is an additional exploitation on the most vulnerable in our world. Well, say, for example, we see people that are working in the garment industry. Uh, a lot of this goes on, most notably in places like New York City, where they're yeah. bringing in seamstresses to work from countries like uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, China. They're smuggled in from overseas, oftentimes in very deplorable, inhumane circumstances. A lot of the big blue shipping containers that you see out at the Port of Oakland fair number yeah. of them have humans that are hidden in there that have been given uh, paltry amounts of water and and uh, and food to last 8 10 12 day trip across the ocean uh into uh, into the port and then they get pulled into smuggled into the garment district and they're told you're going to have to work for x number of years in order to yeah. pay off the cost of your trip and by the way if you try to escape or don't do a, a good job uh we have contacts and they too back in the home country and they say right. if you don't do what we want you to do, uh, we're going to kill your parents, or maybe you have a child at home, sometimes they're splitting up, or maybe a husband comes to get away and, and be able to hopefully send money back home, and so now, now they are threatening the lives of your loved ones back home, and you're right. well, so well beyond the reach of the law, because they say, now, if you try to turn us into the police, they'll just deport you. Right, right. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, the, the question, what do we do? Right. I mean, what what can we do? Let's save that point because I don't want to interrupt you. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back and address that very important question. It comes down to, I guess, two questions we're going to have Kimberly address for us. Number one, why should it matter to us, particularly as Christians? All right. I'm I'm heart sick to hear that women and children are being exploited in sex trade, agriculture business, mining, manufacturing, domestic retail. All but you know, at the end of the day, why does this really matter to me? And then, if we do conclude that it should matter, what do we do about it? We'll come back to that part of the equation, our conversation with Kimberly McOwen Yim. The book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, Kimberly McGowan Yim, the book Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. By the way, let me mention, if you've ever run into a case where you suspect that might be going on, there is a national slavery action hotline that you can call. It's 888-373-7888. That's 888-373-7888. Kim, answer this for me. Some folks eavesdropping on our conversation today might have an understanding that, yes, this is going on and it's pretty pathetic and awful and horrible. But how does this affect me directly? How does it affect you directly? I think um, I think we we kind of touched on a few of those things uh, through our phones, through our communities, through um, just we see it going around us. We don't necessarily see it overtly, but it's happening just under our noses. We might be having um, dinner at a restaurant where the people that are serving us um, are slaves, are enslaved, and cannot leave. I could be wearing a shirt right now that's made in another country, or for that matter, made in the New York City garment district that was made with slave labor. Yeah, and as you mentioned um, before the break, you know, as 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 Christians, why should it matter to us? I mean, that is a, that is a great question. And um, I think um, in to answering, to looking at that, to know, I've come to learn that we, we kind of all, um, as followers of Christ, see that to know God is to know love, right? We say God is love. But I think in the same vein, to know God is to know justice. I mean, he, what I have learned of the last four years is all through scripture God calls us beckons us through through direct quotes through his prophets I mean you name it all through scripture it talks about caring for the oppressed caring for the widow caring for the orphan caring for the oppressed well and the amazing Um, picture we have too I mean we think about the very observation what did Christ come to do in scripture we learn he came to set the captives captives free free. he came to bring freedom to those that were enslaved and the imagery that's used there is not by accident it was imagery that the writers at the time knew the audience the readers would immediately relate to because they saw pictures of the impact and destruction of slavery all around them. And so the idea of somebody that is that deep in bondage and has such utter hopelessness, being a slave, being given sudden release or freedom was such a powerful image that it was even used for us to understand what it meant for Christ to die on the cross that we might be forgiven and released from the bondage of the slavery of our sin. Talk about powerful images that ought to immediately sort of kind of bring this message to the forefront for every Christian who understands what it is to be forgiven. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do we do about all this? How do we, you, you have a chapter in the book, you bring about a discussion concerning chocolate. And I'm a huge chocolate lover. Anybody that's seen my waistline can certainly nod their head in agreement. Um, we know that there are places in the world, particularly along the Ivory Coast in Africa, that contribute to the vast majority of the cocoa beans that are harvested for the chocolate that we all enjoy. You use yeah. that as one example. Share that with our listeners and then take a couple of moments, if you would, please, Kimberly, and just give us a big sort of 30,000 mile high view 
viewpoint as to what we need to be doing to actively engage in bringing to an end the horror that is slavery. Okay, um, in you know just so many minutes. Um, uh, the you mentioned that great point about chocolate, and I think that's one of the the points that we make in the book is that. Everybody, all consumers have uh, purchasing power. They have consumer power as consumers. So, and looking specifically at chocolate, uh, we can begin to redirect our spending and buy fair trade chocolate. And there are, there's divine chocolate, I believe, is in your northern, I mean, is in your neck of the woods. Divine chocolate um, is there. And, and fair trade, uh, and if there's a, there's an, a labeling for that. Um, kind of like an organic, there's actually like a, a, a sign, like an image, a black and white image on next to their products on what is fair trade certified. And it's a third party certification that has done that due diligence to see if it's a clean supply chain. And so buying fair trade chocolate, redirecting, and I know it's hard. I mean, I've got two small kids who love their chocolate and their candy, but we intentionally redirect our spending to buying fair trade chocolate. Um, and fair trade products in general. Uh, another organization that I love that's also up in your area, Trade is One, has, they're going to a whole new, they're only going to be selling consumable fair trade goods uh, from rice to olive oil to chocolate, you, you name it, those kind of consumable things that are fair trade certified. So using your purchasing power, pausing at the point of purchase and thinking, do I need it? Is this so? Is there a reason why they're so cheap? I mean, half the time now, I just kind of, I, I, is there is there a reason why this is so cheap? Asking those questions, and if we don't know, if it isn't fair trade, then asking the companies directly, and that's where slavery slavery footprint is a great resource. Well, it's ironic because we've seen, for example, with Apple, many of the Apple products that we yeah. see coming out of communist China are being made with slave labor, or certainly in circumstances, conditions, and at, at wages that we would look at from any uh, first world viewpoint and say, well, that's deplorable, that's horrific. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Apple because um, as from what I know, and I've surely don't claim to be the expert expert i'm just i'm i I like to say i'm just a mom but i've done a lot of reading um but the um apple went ahead and uh was very very candid saying do an audit on our company we want to know we want to know where things are made and how things are made we wanted clean supply chain so they were actually one of the first uh um what am I thinking of? The first computer companies that who had said, electronic companies who had said, we want a clean supply chain and, and open themselves up to a third-party audit. And that is a new thing. And more and more, hopefully with enough public pressure, more and more companies will look at that as an example. And so rather than saying, oh, no, we might, because more than likely they, they do, is to saying, we want to know. Because oftentimes they don't know. They they trust the people that they're hiring to, you know, overseas. And there's, you know, the minerals have gone through a variety of transits. And it can be tricky to find out, but not impossible. And so I think by public pressure and asking those questions, that'll put enough, um, with enough people caring about it and asking for that, will, re- will become a, p- a public pressure that more and more companies will begin to want to have clean supply chain. So I think we have purchasing power. Um, you mentioned, uh, I think we, we, have, we all have relationship power and influence power, right? So we have 
people in our lives, in our ordinary lives, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's people we go to church with, whether it's our bosses, our employees, our schools, PTA, I mean, anyone who is working with kids, who is um, working in any kind of industry, there's all kinds of people we can have conversations with about it. Education is a huge piece. The hotline number that you mentioned. Perfect. I mean, paying attention to what's going around us is, I think, half of it. Because oftentimes we go on as business as usual. Keep to the grind, get in our car, go to the next spot. And we don't, we're not asking the questions. We're not get, building relationships. We're picking up our clothes at the dry cleaner. Do we look at the person in the eye? How are you? When we get our nails done, are we asking for the same person and building a relationship with the person that's doing her nails because that is where we're going to begin to see um, and possibly who around us when are some red flags. Well, and at the end of the day, I think as the title of your book suggests, look, this is a problem that's going on worldwide. People in the first world are benefiting from this willingly, wittingly or otherwise. It's not right. We need to do something aggressively to stop it. And we ought to be asking these questions, as Kimberly suggests. And then, most importantly, taking a proactive approach to doing something about it. Again, a great way to get educated. Check out slaveryfootprint.org. That's slaveryfootprint.org. And if you're interested more in this topic, a wonderful book newly published by InterVarsity Press Crescendo called simply Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. And are thanks to its uh, co-author. And by the way, I also should mention the founder of the San Clemente Abolitionist Mamas. I love that title. Uh, Kimberly McOwen Yim. Kimberly, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Time now on this edition of Lifeline to talk turkey. So, Craig, I've listened to your show for years. <laughs> the show went to the turkeys years ago. <laughs> well, we're going to do it in a more significant fashion today as we prepare for Thanksgiving. And, of course, traditional in the American menu on Thanksgiving in addition to things like your pumpkin pie or pecan pie or certainly cranberries, is the traditional Thanksgiving turkey. But ironically, a lot of folks somehow are intimidated by cooking a turkey. Maybe perhaps because of the size or in some cases the infrequency in which uh, turkey is uh, cooked. Although i got to tell you, I can have turkey any time of the year. In fact, I bought two in preparation for Thanksgiving. One that I'll enjoy with the family, about uh, 12 of us Thanksgiving Day. And another one tucked away in the freezer there and long about some time in December or January that'll come out and we'll enjoy turkey once again. If turkey's on the menu for your home this Thanksgiving and yet you're a bit intimidated about how to go about actually cooking the perfect bird, well we've got the butterball turkey lady to the rescue. Charlotte Draper joins us now and uh, Charlotte when we talk about cooking the perfect turkey is it true that a lot of folks just get intimidated by this maybe because it's it's such a large animal. It's certainly much bigger than the average chicken and if we're talking about cooking fowl here. Uh, and so as a result, folks just kind of get scared by the whole process? Well, I think folks do get intimidated. But what we've learned here at the Butterball Turkey Talk Line is that, first of all, people need to relax. And the number one question that we're getting right about now is, I have a turkey and the turkey is not thawed yet. What can I do? And the answer to that is to place the turkey breast down in the original wrapper in a sink of cold water 
cold water thawing is the best thing to do when you're at the 11th hour and trying to get the turkey thawed. So let's talk about this because obviously a lot of the stores prefer to sell uh, the frozen turkeys, although there are some uh, uh, you know refrigerator temperature turkeys available, but, but largely most stores are selling the frozen turkeys. Under ideal circumstances, we're two days out here from Thanksgiving. When should that bird come out? And then you talk about placing it in the sink filled with not warm but cold water. How often should that water be changed, Charla? You should change the water as often as you can. We know that frequent changing of the water will make it thaw more quickly. And as for bringing the turkey out, it depends on what size turkey you've purchased. We know that you need to allow about one 24-hour day for every four pounds of turkey weight. And that's where people are a little challenged because, oh, I can just take it out and thaw it in about two days. Yeah, and it doesn't work that way. On that basis, otherwise Thanksgiving will be along about to Friday of next week. <laughs> right, you're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, uh, people will sometimes try to take shortcuts. Can this be risky in terms of? Well, I'm not going to use cold water. I'll use hot water because it'll thaw faster. Or I'm going to stick it in the microwave and try to thaw it that way. What are the pitfalls of that? Well, we don't suggest trying to thaw a turkey larger than 12 pounds in the microwave. And microwave thawing can be a little bit more um, labor-intensive. You have to be hands-on, whereas if you place it breast down in the cold water, that frees you up to do some other things. And we always recommend that people thaw the turkey either in the refrigerator or in the cold water bath, that um, hot water and just leaving it on the counter, those are not good food safe handling practices, and that's where you can run into trouble in terms of uh, really having, you know, a bird that's of good quality to eat. You don't want to create any food safety issues when you're preparing a meal. So proper thawing is as important as proper preparation, as proper cooking, and then, of course, the enjoyable experience of eating. Let's talk about preparation. I'll I'll never forget, and I'm sure you've probably had some calls like this down through the years to the um, Butterball Turkey Hotline, which, by the way, for listeners, any question you might have about how to thaw, prepare, serve the perfect Butterball Turkey, you can give them a call toll-free at 800-BUTTERBALL. That's 800-288-8372. And uh, if you don't have a pen handy, I'll share that number again with you in a few moments. But, uh, Charla, I'll never forget years ago, a friend of mine said, well, you cook turkeys all the time, don't you? Uh-huh. So do, does every turkey come with a surprise bag? And I pause and I said, what surprise bag? Okay, you have to explain to me, what, what do you mean? Well, we, we cooked the turkey, so on and so forth. And then as we were carving the turkey, we found the surprise bag. I said, you know, a turkey is not like a box of Cracker Jack. <laughs> explain the preparation process that includes dealing with, as my friend called it, the surprise bag. Well, most fresh and frozen turkeys... Uh particularly our you know our butterball turkeys would have the turkey neck and the giblets packaged with the turkey the neck is general the neck will be in the body cavity and the bag of giblets will be in the neck cavity and for new cooks we remind them that they need to take these things out however if they forget to take the neck or the giblets out of the turkey and the turkey is prepared with them in there, never fear. The bag is non-toxic. Simply throw those giblets away if you cook them in the turkey 
and your turkey is perfectly safe to eat. Okay, so even if you make the mistake and find a surprise bag, <laughs> the turkey <laughs> itself is still okay. All right, so once you, you've cleaned the turkey, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, preparing the turkey. Do butterballs need to be trussed? No. One of the great things about our butterball turkeys is that when they are processed, we cut them in such a way so that the turkey legs are tucked under a band of skin. There's no trussing or tying or plastic or metal or anything like that. They're just tucked under um, the natural skin of the turkey and that skin, the legs can be released if you're stuffing the turkey with a bread stuffing and when you finish adding the stuffing, simply tuck the legs back under there. So that's, that's really one of the beauties of our butterball turkeys. I know that there are so many different modes of cooking turkeys. You've got the high heat method. Some folks, if they like to buy gallons and gallons of oil, will deep fry them, things of this sort. But for the folks that are just getting started, they want to cook the perfect butterball turkey. Give us a couple of tips here, if you would, Charlotte, just in terms of how to go about cooking the, the easiest, most safest in terms of quality of the, of the outcome of the experience method of cooking a turkey. Well, you know, over the years in talking on the talk line, we have learned that about 25% of our callers are men. And in order to make sure that we're sharing a pretty much foolproof way of cooking, we always suggest the open pan method for people that are new cooks. And that means you place the turkey, thaw it out. It's breast up on a flat rack in an open, shallow pan. That can be one of the pans that you pick up at the grocery store, those foil disposable pans. Brush the turkey skin with a little vegetable oil to prevent the skin from drying. You want to put the turkey in a preheated 325-degree oven. We suggest you try to use a meat thermometer that is either a roasting thermometer that can stay in the turkey while it's cooked or have an instant read thermometer so at the end of the cooking time you can check the turkey temperature. The temperature you want to get the turkey to come to would be, three, would be 180 in the thigh or dark meat and 165 to 170 in the turkey breast or the white meat. Once you take the turkey out of the oven, we suggest that you let the turkey rest about 20 minutes and that allows the turkey juices to settle and will help you slice, have more even turkey slices. If you slice a turkey and it's too hot, usually you're not very happy with how the slice comes yeah, out. They, they tend to kind of tear, doesn't it, and shred. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I've heard, I've had novices joke, say, let the turkey rest. Why, is it tired from all that time in the oven? <laughs> tired. He has had a busy day. It has. Now, at 325, what's the rule of thumb in terms of how many minutes per pound? You know, Craig, we really don't give our recommendations in terms of minutes per pound because like people, turkeys come in different shapes. Some are more long, some are more round. So because there's such a variance in terms of the turkey's shape, we recommend using the meat thermometer. That's the most accurate indicator of doneness. Is there a ballpark time, though, in terms of, because I know of some folks that say, well, I put the turkey in at midnight and I put it in low heat and it sits there and it cooks for eight hours. Now, at 325, if you put the bird in uh, for eight hours, you would have nuclear waste when it was all said and done. Uh, Is there a ballpark ID in terms of the average length of time that I ought to kind of be figuring so I can plan the rest of the meal around that? 
Well, what you'll find with your butterball turkey is there will be a chart enclosed in terms of how long you should cook it, depending on the particular turkey that you have. Uh, it'll give you a cooking time based on your turkey weight and whether or not you are stuffing the turkey. Okay, so time different, whether it's being stuffed versus unstuffed. Yeah, uh, yeah. If it's a stuffed turkey, you will need to cook it a little bit longer. Okay, once we've taken the turkey out, any recommendation in terms of the amount of time that we ought to allow it to rest prior to beginning carving? I would suggest 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And any preference over the type of knife? I've always liked to use an electric knife. I seem to have the best uh, the best experience with an electric knife. But any preferences in terms of what tends to give you the, the, the best control and the most accurate cut? The electric knife can be great for slicing turkey. And the other thing that's really important in terms of choosing a knife is to make sure your knife is sharp. I have to tell you, when my dad would carve the turkey... Even if the knife was sharpened professionally before the holiday started, he always had to have the sharpening steel and sharpen it again himself at the table. That's part of the show, right? Yeah, I think that was part of his ritual. <laughs> That's part of the show. And you mentioned about uh, lightly brushing the, uh, the outside of the bird with vegetable oil. Any other seasonings do you recommend beyond that? Well... I would suggest you want to, well, we know there's so many recipes that different people like to use. I think you can do a great job with just salt and pepper, maybe a little bit of garlic, sage, of course, and uh, I like to use sometimes uh, fresh thyme if that's available. Excellent. And again, if folks have any questions during this process, uh, they're free to call the Butterball Turkey Hotline, again, toll-free at 800-BUTTERBALL. That's 800 800- Two eight eight eighty three seventy two, and something special and kind of unique this year. You mentioned, Charlotte, that fully twenty five percent of your callers to the Butterball Turkey Hotline are guys. You've actually got some Butterball Turkey guys that are on staff this year, uh, shelling out some uh, advice and information too. Yes, we have uh, two new colleagues who are men, and uh, I think they're enjoying their time on the talk line and are surprised at actually how busy it is. But we know that men are cooking more and certainly year-round and we thought it would be great to have the male perspective sharing with some of the men who call in on the talk line. Absolutely and again if you need information anywhere along the process uh, give them a call toll-free they are available to answer questions in terms of prep time how to prep how to cook how to serve just give them a call the Butterball Turkey Hotline at 800-288-8372 that's 800-288 888-8372. And our thanks to Charlotte Draper for that turkey update. So this way, your Thanksgiving will feature a turkey instead of turning out to be a turkey meal. I'm Craig Roberts. Again, details 800-288-8372 for the Butterball Turkey Hotline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.